love another episode. I have to say, this one is going to be really cool because we have a really, really interesting guest on. Well, the first guest of this caliber of this, uh, it's, it's really hard to even put into words what I'm feeling right now. I'm just really excited to talk to this guy. I do this a lot, by the way, where I'll just keep saying this guy to avoid saying your name because then it won't feel like you're allowed to talk yet. And then I just can make you a little uncomfortable by talking about you and you can't even say anything. It's working. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, he, well, let me just cut to the chase. He is an actor with a disability, a visible disability. We've talked a lot on this show already about acting and media and what it's like to portray disability and do they do a good job? Should they have hired a disabled person? Should they have not? Does it make it better? Does it not? And so finally, we have a guest who can speak to that firsthand rather than just listening to us postulate forever. And so I'm really, really excited to talk about shows and media and art with this guest who's been behind the curtains, behind the scenes. And we get to also talk about uh, some of the stuff that he has on the horizon right now and some stuff that's working. So, yeah, let me just introduce Anthony Lopez. What's up? Did I make you uncomfortable enough? So uncomfortable? Uh, sufficiently uncomfortable. <laughs> sufficiently. Like, I'm at, I'm, I'm, at a good, I'm at a good level of discomfort to start things off. Okay. So... Yeah, maybe just for those who don't know you, just uh, give a quick, you know, introduction of who you are. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I'm super grateful that I even met you guys. Andrew Gerza connected us. And um, I don't know. I just don't, I, I don't have like a ton of disabled friends. I have some really good ones, but I'm happy that I have like you guys in my circle. But anyway, okay, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so my name is Anthony Michael Lopez. I'm an actor. I have a prosthetic leg. Um, people most usually know me from my appearance on Broad City, where I was in a park and Abby Jacobson comes over and uh, essentially yanks my prosthetic leg off, and then things get super weird. That's such a good scene, by the way. I've watched Thanks. it a dozen times uh, since I knew we would talk to you. Uh yeah, and and I laugh every time. Thank you. It was my, that was my first TV thing ever. And probably the thing that I'm most recognized for. So there was that. And then I was also in uh, Homeland uh, with Claire Danes on Showtime. And uh, I was in a production of Othello at New York Theater Workshop with Daniel Craig, uh, Rachel Brosnahan, David Oyelowo, Finn Whitrock, and other fancy ass people oh man very fancy ass yeah that's so awesome i love the marvelous miss basil it's like the best yeah she's amazing i want to talk a bit about your broad city scene because that one really covers disability in a perfect way in my opinion because the joke obviously ends up being about how disabled people the interactions they have with able-bodied people are always absurd as a result of them just clearly not knowing how to interact and you could tell that that scene was pretty well riffed and i know that they're very good riffers and you riffed 
equally well. That was fantastic. But when you got cast for that scene, I'm guessing they were like, they had written scene probably for an amputee, correct? Yeah, they had written it for an amputee. And originally it was like five lines, like four or five lines. Super, it was supposed to just be a super quick interaction where she comes over and I've got my prosthetic leg up on a chair in the park and she doesn't know that it's a fake leg. And she's like, do you, can we just take the chair? We've got two people, you know, we need another chair. And I'm like, no, I'm using the chair. And she goes, oh, okay, well, you're being a dick. So I'm going to take the chair. And she yanks <laughs> the chair out and then my leg falls to the ground. And then it was supposed to end <clears throat> with her just leaving. And we got there <laughs> And as we were shooting, it was like, this can't just end like that. It obviously, she just started to sort of react the way that she would really react. I think because, because my prosthetic leg actually fell off. (laughs) So I think she was genuinely just sort of going with what she was feeling, which was like, holy shit. Oh no, my God. And then, um, so she just like desperately tries to make it better by, by like leaning over and trying to pick up the fake leg and put it back up. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, and the thing that I, and, and what I was, what I said was like, don't touch it. Don't, yeah. what do you, don't touch it. And then she, and then, so she tries to approach me and I'm like, don't touch me. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, and it's perfect because it's like, look, here's just, here's a disabled guy just trying to just live his life. And here comes this person who like not only kind of uh, makes an aggressive move, but then like doesn't know how to deal with the fact of the disability happening and like is trying to desperately to make herself feel better about the, about the situation. So um, yeah, it was fun. We, we did riff a lot and they kept like all of it in, which was uh, cool. It's, it's only like 40 seconds, but it's such a perfect moment. Like there's an element of catharsis, I think that as a disabled person in the audience, when you're watching it, like you genuinely feel because it sort of feels like Abby actually does that to you. Like, <laughs> you know, obviously it's a stage scene, but it it feels very real. And then there's this like, because Anthony and Tony, I don't know, you guys can probably relate to this, but we have several interactions on a daily basis with perfect strangers like in the streets or throughout our our daily lives where people will say things to us that are maybe slightly offensive or transgressive but their intent is never quite that like they're always trying to navigate your disability like with as much respect or consideration as they can and they sort of inadvertently end up being inconsiderate and so like I've wanted at times to be able to tell a bus driver off for (laughs) making assumptions about my ability to get on like, you know, a non-accessible vehicle or whatever, or to just kind of like have it out. And we never get that opportunity. So that 40 seconds is both funny and honest, but it's it's also uh, like a kind of relief. It's also, it was such a good scene because... At the beginning, when you don't know that you're using the chair to rest your prosthetic leg, you're kind of on Abby's side. Because you're like, okay, yeah, but you're using two chairs. You don't need a second chair. Like, come on. And then you're, you don't tell her. You're not like, oh, yeah, but this is my prosthetic leg. Because that would have just ended it there, right? But it, it's hilarious because... You're just like, no, no, I'm using it. I said, yeah, yeah, we'd all love to have an automate in the park. But 
I'm going to take the chair. And I loved it because I was on her side until she pulls the chair. This is the really interesting part of the scene. It's the power flip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this is like, God, I, I experience this all the time where I, <laughs> I'm like walking you know, around New York City, just going about my day, assuming that everyone else is the asshole <laughs> until suddenly it is revealed that I am in fact the asshole. And you watch that moment happy, happen with Abby with like kind of the highest <laughs> stakes possible. <laughs> so yeah it's, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, that's that was such a good scene. There's also a, like an uh, almost like an element of slapstick to it, which you never see like with a disabled actor in anything. It, it, it's just, it works on so many levels. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that like you know the, the character's name is Leg Dude, but like the fact that the fact the, the fact that like Leg Dude takes control of the situation is you know the the disabled person in the scene is taking control and has the power at the end of the scene that's that's i think what really makes it work correct me if i'm wrong were you also not uh, a leg dude in the nick oh that one i almost forgot about that one because that that was i they just needed somebody to lie on a table this was like way this was a long time ago but uh yeah i was a leg patient in the, the nick where a doctor had to it was something like drain. Oh, oh! I watched the scene. Did you watch it? And it was fully disgusting. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I was fully just like a. I was just like a stand-in. I was basically just like a stunt person in that scene because I just had to lie on the table, and they just needed somebody with like uh, an empty space where the leg should be. Oh, right. So that they could put the 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 fake leg there, the prop leg that had all the pus in it and whatever. But that's what I loved about it because it's like. When is your disability a benefit to the cast? You know what I mean? Like they had to cast you because it was easy for them to put a fake leg that they could fill with fake pus in your in the spot. Right. Yeah. Which if you were able bodied you had both legs, it would have been a difficult procedure, I'm guessing, for them to try to build a pus sack. Can't believe I just said that phrase. And then work around it but you ended up being like the perfect uh person to have on that table because but yet it was i watched it and it was so i already don't have a good stomach the word pus grosses me out it's probably like top three worst words and it was that show doesn't hold back no, that, that show, it's like all about the innate body horror of like 1900s medicine, right? Yeah. And there's like an element of science fiction to it too. Oh, it's so cool. That was one of my favorite shows, like circa 2015-ish, I guess. But yeah, that's it, it's really interesting that they were able to leverage your disability, like for the sake of a practical effect and for like its effective execution. It's something I never thought about. Yeah, as long as they... Hire me. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It wasn't as I was super, you know, excited to do that too. Cause at that point I had never been on a TV set before. So, well then, then you've got your show, your, your role in Homeland, which again, it was a, a minor speaking role, but it was like a pretty profound line that you said. Do you, do you remember the line? You can't make people do things they don't want to do. Right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a good, because I'm guessing like the context was, was basically you 
or like maybe a PT or like somewhere in the rehab space and someone was supposed to come in, they never came in and you're just like, we can't make someone come in. And getting that delivered from you, I felt like was such a good a good use of disability in that moment because it's way easier for like some able-bodied dude bro PT guy to be like, well, yeah, you can't make them come in, bro. But then you say it and you're saying it from a level of like complete empathy. I thought that was, again, like a really, you've had some really cool parts already. I have. Yeah. I'm very lucky. Yeah. That line. I mean, I don't know that that shoot was crazy because that was all like, that was the beginning of one of the seasons I don't remember. And it was part of a one shot, a continual shot. So there was no cutting. Mm. So they started the shot several minutes before it was my scene. So I had no idea when she was going to like burst into the room. And then suddenly like there's Claire Danes in the middle with this like swarm of technology around her. And she's like yelling at me and I'm like, Oh God, here's the time. Here's when I have to speak. Now I'm talking to Claire Danes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) So that was my experience of doing that scene. And I'm glad it has resonance beyond my absolute terror. (laughs) Cause that, that would have been bad. So then that, sort of launched you towards Maplethorpe, right? I guess so. Oh, yeah. that Because it, it, it was the same casting director. Look at you. I hadn't even, <laughs> I hadn't even, I, I don't even remember that. Yeah, there was Judy Henderson that cast me in both of those things. That's crazy. Um, Judy Henderson is fantastic. Judy, if you're listening, um, cast me in things. <laughs> I do love her. But like, yeah, so she, she cast me for Homeland and then she called me in for Maplethorpe, which I thought was really interesting because that was obviously a biopic. So the person that I was playing, Jack Fritcher, is a real person who does not have a disability. Yeah. And then I got the part. I was shocked because up until that point, I hadn't really been hired for non-disability stuff um, where the disability was sort of the thing that got me into the room. But with that one, it was... With Maplethorpe, it was about, she knew that I could do the role and she knew that I was right for the role. Right. And Jack Fritcher is bald. So that probably helped as well. <laughs> but, but like that, that was so cool because I think because of the way that the industry is set up and maybe because of my own internalized ableism, I never thought that people would see me as like a love interest on camera. I never thought people would see me as able to play not only a character that wasn't written with a disability, but a real life person who doesn't have a disability in a biopic. Yeah. That blew my mind. That was a big day for me. And that was also my first, my first like feature film that was going to be, you know, out in theaters and stuff. With that ableism, do you get like a feeling of imposter syndrome when you're cast in a role that isn't catered to your disability? I get, I get imposter syndrome no matter what I'm doing. I get imposter syndrome ordering a fucking bagel from the bodega. Like it's, it's nonstop. Um, but yeah, I mean, specifically with the disability stuff. Yes. Like I, I tend to think like, I just did, I, uh, this, uh, the show that I'm in right now called desert Inn. it's a miniseries, streaming miniseries. Like I watch that sometimes and it's really hard for me to not go like, 
oh, maybe I'm limping too much. Maybe I, maybe my disability is a little too obvious kind of thing. Too obvious. That's really interesting. It is all internalized ableism that I learned from the world. But in that role in Desert Inn, you're not performing any element of your character's disability. That's you, right? That's just you walking around being Anthony. Yes. So how could you be too disabled? Exactly. Like I went to, <laughs> I, I, I went to theater school though. And the whole thing was always like, look elegant, look beautiful, look like you're mm-hmm. in control of your body. And of course, like doing mostly theater for my, the majority of my training and career, I never really like looked at myself, you know, cause I'm in, on stage, you know, and they're rarely taped and whatever. Yeah. So like, when I started doing on-camera work, it was really kind of shocking to me to see how obvious my disability was. And it took a lot of like acceptance of myself to be able to become kind of okay with it. And then start to be like, holy shit, I'm actually kind of performing a service by being some, like a, like my appearance on a screen is inherently political yeah. Yeah. because we, we don't see, we don't see many actors in like legitimate, Piece, we don't, they, you know, mainstream media doesn't give a lot of actors with obvious disabilities a shot. So you don't have the luxury of being apolitical, even though that's not a thing. <laughs> My sister is an actress and she, she went to uh, Brock University in Canada, St. Catharines, and um, she uh, got a degree in drama and theater education. And there was like, I think a lot of stigma put toward her about this particular career choice, you know, from my parents and our extended family. Like, well, you should mention she also has CP, right? She she does. Yeah. We're, we're siblings with the same disability. Uh, not quite like I have cerebral palsy, like Andrew, uh, our mutual friend, Andrew, and um, she has it as well, but it's like different diagnoses. So I'm more spastic and my sister, uh, I forget the medical term for it, but she's like loose her in, in response, in response to being startled, like I will stiffen and she will flop if that makes sense. So, but she's had kind of a, a, a renaissance lately in, in the theater aspect of her life. She's been able to perform in, in several plays over the last couple of years, even one during COVID. Um, and she was recently cast in a role that was not, a disabled character like you know she uses forearm crutches and a manual chair like a variety of mobility aids to get around so just like the logistics of her moving in general are overwhelming and then to have to do it for um a play which it was three lead female roles uh, because of the nature of the play they were they were in bathtubs the entire time and there was like um these like nozzles suspended from this the, the, from the ceiling, like constantly refre- refilling the bathtub with water, and they'd have to get up out of the bathtub and deliver like these lines, like effective mo- monologues back and forth, and then sort of walk around the wet stage and then get back into the bathtub for the next scene transition. So it it, it was like the number of transfers, like physically as a disabled person, and me watching, <laughs> it was immensely stressful i was like how the fuck is she doing this you know because she had like rubber tipped uh crutches and then they had like a prop chair so it wasn't even her chair i don't know how often you've been asked to like not use your prosthetic or if you've ever been asked to use different mobility equipment but anyway 
it's crazy. So uh, my question for you is, um, why did you choose acting? What is important to you about your profession? Oh, man. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> Yo, I just want to talk about that play now. <laughs> yeah, me too. That sounds nuts. Uh, <laughs> whoa. Yeah. A, it sounds nuts. And mm-hmm. like, just like logistically. Yeah. Was she, what did she, was it okay? Like, did she do well? She did the whole fucking thing. Uh, multiple performances a night for several weeks. And like, she had bruises like everywhere uh, after like every performance. And I was just thinking like, do does your stage director or whoever else like really appreciate what's going on here? Because like physically. Right, because this would, this would be difficult for a non-disabled person. Yes. Exactly. This would be, this would be a challenge for anyone. And especially exactly. for, for somebody, not only somebody with a disability, but somebody who uses mobility aids. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's huge. Second of all, I mean, I think that play sounds fucking cool. Yeah, like, I would want to watch that show. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, I was like aghast by the end of it. I was really proud of her. It was so fucking yeah. awesome. And I'm that's not sure awesome. that, it, that it got the exposure that it really deserved. I, you know, I hope she continues to pursue uh, more opportunities in local theater and beyond, but from her experience there, I kind of wanted to ask you a bunch of different questions. Yeah, for sure. Well, you asked me, you asked me why, what I like, what I like about it. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, I think it's acting. And I think in some ways it's like, um, for whatever reason, my brain is built to love it. Like it's Mm. just, I'm just built for it. I, I have been performing since I was a little kid. I just have always wanted to do it. I've always wanted to like, when I was a kid, I was before I even did children's theater. When I was like ten years old, I I was acting out scenes from all the movies that I watched for my family. I was like gathering my family and just like look at me. And I think there's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of like anti-actor conversation sometimes that we're like attention whores and we're you know <laughs> self-centered and and stuff like that. And I think some of it's true, but I also think who isn't that true about? Everybody wants to be looked at everybody, you know, and then, and then the other thing is like, there's something beyond that. There's something about like, God, I'm like choking up thinking about this right now, but thinking about bringing a bunch of people together and making a place where it's safe to like all kind of breathe together and express emotions that are unacceptable to express in the outside world, outside of our like, circle yeah outside of the theater and it's kind of sacred in that way and i've always always been so energized by that process it's like bringing form to the inner life almost right exactly exactly and it's a ritual it's always a ritual and and it's safe and like there's something about like watching a play and our mirror neurons are sort of firing and whatever people are feeling on the screen or on the stage, like you're also feeling. So if they're feeling like catharsis, uh, like expression, you know, you're also feeling that. And if you need that, that's super healing. And um, uh, yeah, I love it so much. There, there have been times when I have like hated it and really not wanted to do it. Um, but th- that's, been the main thing that i always come back to yeah it's it's just really we we I, I just can't emphasize it enough like we're not allowed to express certain emotions in public 
So when you when you hate performing, is it because you're not in the in the mood that particular day, or is it because you're performing something that maybe doesn't resonate with who you are as a person? It's so many, yeah. It's both of those things. It's so many other things too. Like sometimes it's just like God, I just don't want to be looked at right now. Mm. Sometimes it's like I'm not really getting it. Like I'm not really able to be present for whatever reason. Like if there's something going on in my home life, you know, or personal life, whatever, like sometimes it's hard to let myself be super present and emotionally available. Um, sometimes I'm just tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, um, have you always had a prosthetic? Yeah, I was born, I was born with, it's called proximal femoral focal deficiency. So my, uh, my femur bone is short and my, um, I was born without a, a tibia. Okay. So I only have the fibula. And my whole right leg was just shorter. My left, my left leg is like average size and my right leg was just shorter. So I've always used to press that yeah. So you've had a part of your uh, right leg amputated, right? Yeah, I had my foot amputated, yeah. Okay, and that's so that, that the prosthetic would fit better or that you'd have a prosthetic that made you more mobile? Both. Both, yeah? Yeah. And you, and you really look forward to that surgery? I didn't. I know. I was 13 and I was terrified, but I, but I knew that it was 13. Uh Yeah. I was in eighth grade. I was going into eighth grade. So they, they amputated my foot at the beginning of the summer. And then I went into eighth grade on crutches and stuff. And I, uh, I also had a profound surgery around the eighth grade when I was 12 or 13, I had a procedure called the shark attack and it it, (laughs) it had, it had that name because of the, who actually called it that? They did, yeah, to my face, to a, to a twelve or thirteen year old boy. I was, I was fucking terrified. But your doctors called it that. Yeah, luckily it was Shriners Hospital in the states, and they they did these surgeries like like many a day, so they knew what the fuck they were doing. Which Shriners did you go to? Uh, in Minnesota. Okay, cool. I went to the one in Chicago. It's about six hours away from from where I live in Thunder Bay, Ontario. But anyway, like the relative recovery was seamless and I, I benefit greatly from the results, you know, 15 years later or whatever, but it's quite traumatic, right? Did you have that same experience? Wait, what is a shark attack? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so, so they, so they broke and rotated my right femur, my left tibia. And then, then they reconstructed my feet using bone from my hip, I think. And then what else was it? They they released my hamstrings and something else. So yeah, it was like nine consecutive procedures. It took eight hours total to complete. It's intense. It's a lot. So yeah. Uh, how, how do we segue from here? Oh, I thought you had a question. Well, what were you gonna? You were gonna ask a question, yeah. Okay, so you had this surgery when you were thirteen. Um, and you've had a prosthetic ever since. Yeah, I had the I had the prosthetic before that, but then what the what my amputation when I was thirteen allowed me to do was have a prosthetic that was more. Um, what's the word? Oh, I was able to have a hydraulic knee. Okay, because before they were like rotating my foot around because it was approximately at the point where a knee joint would be in an average leg. So my my ankle joint was acting as the knee joint. Okay. Which is, there's just not a lot of mobility and it's super, super uncomfortable to have a prosthetic like work in that way. So once I had my foot amputated, I was able to wear a leg where 
I could just sort of suction into it. And then the knee was hydraulic. So it was more responsive, it was more freeing, it took less effort. So yeah, uh, more comfortable uh, and more, more mobility overall. Yeah, definitely. So no regrets whatsoever? None. No, I made the right choice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, when you're growing up, I, I'm, I'm assuming you led a fairly active life. Like you're, when, when you're wearing your prosthetic, your mobility uh, limitations are minimal? For the well, it depends on the day. Okay. Really, yeah, because there are. I have some. Yes, I'm mostly pretty active and can like keep up with my life. Um, But then there's like offshoots of issues that happen, like that are related to my disability. Like I'll have like back issues, and as I get older, it's actually happening more. Where like I'll get tired more easily. I'll have back issues. There's like skin problems, chafing, mm-hmm. um, So it's like, it's like that kind of thing where it's like related to my disability, those kinds of issues. But, but, you know, yeah, mostly I'm pretty, I'm pretty active. I would say, although the last play that I did where I was like super, I had to be super active. That took it out of me. I was like on stage for almost like three hours total and just constantly moving. Oh God. And that really took me out for like several months afterward. So you can walk, how far, how far can you walk with your prosthetic? Uh, on a good day where like, there's not a lot of humidity and it's not too hot <laughs> uh, and I'm not carrying anything and I'm well rested. <laughs> uh, it's like, it's got a few miles. A few miles. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, yeah, I went to, I went to, uh, I went to Italy in 20, 2015 or 2016 and I took the whole Vatican tour and I think that was like six or seven miles. And I did that and I was shocked that I could do that. It has to be charged though, right? There's like uh, computer components in it. Yes. It's got to be charged. To like synchronize with your gate, I, is, I assume, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I, I'm like super ignorant about uh, prosthetics. Um, uh, if it runs out of charge, like if it dies, does something happen? Like, do you have to stop moving? No. Um it just becomes less comfortable and less easy and, and less safe. Okay. So uh, the knee will stop becoming responsive. Usually what, how it works when it's fully charged is I'll put pressure on the foot somewhere, which sends a signal to the knee to release and bend. So it's, it's a more fluid gait and it's easier on my body. But when it runs out of charge, it just kind of goes into free swing mode. So I have to really control where I'm putting my foot down, where I'm, how I'm distributing my weight. So it becomes a lot less safe. You have to think about every step, basically, I assume. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that must be a huge pain in the ass. It is, but I, I make sure to keep it charged. I, as I've gotten older, that's just happened too many times. Where like, I'll just like, ah, uh, God, like when I first moved to the city, all I wanted to do was like stay at my friends' places and like drink and party. <laughs> And I'll be, I would be like, oh, fuck it. I, I don't need to charge my leg tonight. And then the next day I'd be walking. I'd be like going to work with like my leg, just like sabotaging my life. Anyway. So you actually have to charge it like every day. Every night. Yeah. Overnight. That's happened to me as well. And probably for you, Tony, where um, I will forget to charge my power chair for a stretch of days. And then I'll end up having to bring the charge pack with me in my backpack. And then I basically limit 
like I can bring it to work and plug myself in, but then I have an excuse out of any like office meetings or any like, <laughs> like superfluous get togethers because, you know, my chair needs to charge. So if I'm strategically avoiding like, you know, occupational responsibilities, I'll just forget to charge my chair. <laughs> That's always a benefit. Being disabled does have its perks. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you ever just be like, oh, sorry, chair, I forgot my leg. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Just hopping down the street, yeah. <laughs> but I do sometimes, like, use it. Like, you know, if there's a long line or something or at the airport, I'll just be like, I, I can't wait in the line. Just start beating people with your leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, as a disabled person, the airport experience, like, if you choose to leverage it, is amazing. Yeah. At least at least for for me. That is true. Yeah. Yes. Because if, if you just want to, like, shut the fuck down and sit in a chair and have, like, like flight attendants or whoever, like, look after your every need and bring you to your gate and make sure you get on the aircraft, <laughs> you can do that. Like, you can fall asleep. You can get drunk. Like, it's amazing. That is true. Uh, I wanted to ask a question, kind of bring it back to acting. Do you prefer or do you have a preference when if, if there's a role where your disability is incorporated into the role and playing a part in the role? Or do you prefer a role, or again, maybe don't have a preference, where it's not really even a thought, you just happen to have a disability? It, it all depends on the context, I think. So if the play is uh, discussing also something that I really want to explore, something that really interests me, then it's interesting to understand or to kind of investigate how disability plays into those themes. Because disability doesn't happen in a vacuum, just like emotional and psychological experiences don't happen in a vacuum. There's the physical side of life, and then there's the emotional, the kind of ethereal side of life. And I think what theater and storytelling does is it kind of brings both of those things together. So as a disabled performer, I'm always going to be playing somebody with a disability. Every role that I play will always be a disabled role. So there's always going to be some really interesting way that disability intersects with the themes that the play or the movie are already talking is already talking about, you know. Sometimes usually, I and I will say, I'm sorry to interrupt. Usually I will say like uh, disability tends to make everything more interesting. Right. Like it tends to usually just heighten the stakes of all the, the emotional experience of the characters in the play, because then there's this physical friction. There's this thing, there's this like limitation that, that we're pushing up against where, you know, non-disabled people don't, aren't always thinking about their own physical limitations, you know, but they're there. I find when able-bodied people are confronted with their physical limitations, it is often a crisis, like a bona fide crisis <laughs> in their lives where they're suddenly confronted with mortality in some way. It's like when Texas gets snow. Yeah, yeah. Texas gets- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life is over. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. Like, I, okay, so here's one example. Here's one thing that I don't want to do. I don't anymore want to do stories where and i'm sure you guys talk about this all the time where uh i'm playing a person whose main problem in the story is his disability yeah i was just gonna say like when disability uh sort of dominates the narrative of a of a film rather than being 
something that accentuates a person's character or informs like who they are, uh, then the movie tends to become about how do we solve disability, right? And there's never a fucking solution to it. So it's much more preferable for me to see disabled characters, you know, moving through their lives uh, and, and maybe, you know, how disability informs their lives, but not necessarily compromises their entire identity or something. That's exactly it. Because, you know, a disabled person writing a role about disability is not just going to not just going to be about disability. It's going to be about how disability impacts their desires or their, you know, um, wounds, uh, emotional wounds or their relationships, you know. So you just always I mean, you know, when you see when you see a role where their main issue, the only problem that they have to solve is the fact that they're disabled, you know that that's coming from uh, an ableist perspective where disability is a problem that needs to be solved right? rather than a fact of life that, that we can investigate in an interesting way. Um, you've, you made a really interesting point in your discussion uh on Andrew Gerza's podcast, episode 133 of Disability After Dark, um, you were talking about <laughs> you were talking about how um, like when you're walking down the street in the summer, uh, like with shorts on, like you're liable to get like a lot of uh, uh, positive reinforcement from passersby, or even like even like saluted by. Uh, by people who think like maybe you're a veteran or something like that. Yeah, all the time. And then when they find out that I'm not, they're always disappointed. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, they hate it. They hate it. Because then it's medical. They can't. They then they can't say. Then they they can't attach this like hero narrative to it. Right. 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 Yeah, that's crazy. That's like all the psychology going on there is so interesting. But it is so fun to be saluted as you're walking down the street. Yeah, I can imagine. By just out of nowhere, just people being like, salute, like, thank you for your service. I'm like, thank you for your service. In their head, they're doing such a good thing to you. And they're doing it with so much conviction. And then you tell them that you're not, you're not a war vet. And they're just like, you probably embarrass them more than anything. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I, I had a therapist one time say... Because I was like bitching about it because it was the summertime and I was just like, I just want to walk down the fucking street because it happens every day. It happens every day. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, I just want to walk down the street and just be on the subway without somebody like taking a photo of me, you know, whatever. Because it just, you know, it, make, it makes me feel gawked at. It makes me feel objectified, you know, whatever. And my therapist was like, you know, I think uh, most people walk around feeling sorry for themselves. And then I think they see you and they feel like, they're sort of shaken out of that. Yeah. Not that that helps, but I think that's, I think that's a part of it. You know, that's a pretty profound idea. Like that you can, that your very being can shake someone out of their own self pity for just a moment. And like, you know, maybe they're not empathizing exactly correctly, Mm -hmm. like afterwards or like toward you, but it's still like a, like an interesting opportunity or, or like an awakening for, for a person who maybe doesn't have mobility issues. Well, and this is why it's really important to just make sure that there are, that there's authentic, uh, good disability representation in the media. That's why I think it's really important because 
there is this thing in our culture where we refuse to acknowledge the fact that our physical being is limited, everyone's. And I think when there's disability incorporated in a, in a, in a good way, in a valuable way, it can be a reminder to everyone that we all have bodies and they're all squishy and they're all going to fail us in some way. Yeah. And, and, and not that that's like a, uh, it should be a terrifying thing, but if anything, it should make life precious, more precious to recognize that it's that that this body that we take for granted that we assume sometimes it's just going to be there for us, or maybe just uh, able-bodied people feel this way to recognize the fact that, oh, it's not a given. It's not a given at all. So with that knowledge, with that insight and that acknowledgement of that fact, what are you going to do with your day? And how are you going to treat other people? How are you going to treat yourself? You know, it's so, it's so important to me. And I think that's the power of just showing a disabled person as a human being in a story. Um, as a segue, I think your your TV series Desert Inn like r- really accomplishes that. Thank you. I think so too. So okay, so I should preface this. I I was like nervous about watching this because I haven't seen anything like opera related since I was nine years old, and it was like 1997, and I went to see the Phantom of the Opera with my family in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> so like going into this, I was like, I was like, is this going to be inaccessible? Am I going to be able to talk about this? Like, I don't know. Well, here's the thing. So Desert Inn for the, for, for people listening who don't know about Desert Inn, it's, it was commissioned as a new opera by the Boston Lyric Opera. It's uh, written by eight different composers, but then there are all, it's, it's a, a mini series cinematic. And there are also, there were also, uh, I don't remember how many, but several TV writers, film directors, and actors like me. I'm not an opera singer, and I don't sing in this. But the idea of it—it's you know—it's based in this magic, this magical hotel in the middle of the desert in California. And it's um, people. Everybody who watches it has been has been comparing it to a, 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 sort of a David Lynch mm-hmm. uh, show, and. I think what the opera does, because it's so trippy and it's so um, surreal, the opera, the opera element just kind of lends this um, otherworldly, it just adds to the kind of magic of the piece. And because like, I was super intimidated by the opera thing too, because I'm not an opera person at all. Classical music tends to make, tends to feel like an insider's group that I am not a part of. Right. So, right. you know, so I think that that is kind of intimidating to some people. But this piece, I think, will open that up. It, you you get acclimatized to it very very quickly. Like exactly. I think by the middle of the second episode, we we sort of started to understand the narrative grammar of the of the show, and like you know, it, there's not a huge ensemble of characters, um, so you get oriented fairly quickly, and then it's like incredibly immersive. Mm-hmm. And then there is some dialogue too. There's you know, yeah, yeah. It is a TV show. It's a TV show. Um, so you're like, uh, I, I don't want to get too much into the plot of the show because I don't want to spoil anything, um, but you're essentially the main character of, of this series, or you're at least like like the audience surrogate. In my mind, I kind of thought you were, I'm not sure. But like, yeah, you're the groundskeeper of this hotel, which which has the, the power to bring uh, uh, loved ones back to life, right? Yeah. 
people who have died get to come back to life. So the guests at the hotel pay to spend more time with their dead loved ones. Mm-hmm. So it has like Mulholland Drive slash Memento slash like Solaris vibes, like 1970s science fiction. There's mm-hmm. there's a whole pastiche of really interesting things going on here. And it's all like LGBTQ actors, right? Actually, no, 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 no. um, Justin Vivian Bond, the like iconic downtown Tony nominated, uh, incredible trans superstar plays the lounge singer. Right. And so, so Justin Vivian Bond and I are the only queer actors. Really? In in the piece. Yeah. Okay. There's there's lots of steamy gay sex, <laughs> but it's but 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 we're the only we're the only queer ones in uh in the main cast. Um so I guess I just kinda wanted to focus on on your episode. Um episode four is called A Single Man. I was wondering if that was a reference to the Colin Firth movie of the same name. Oh God, they don't tell me any of that. I don't fucking know. I don't, I don't even, I don't even, I, I mean, I don't even know what, I don't even know what the title of the piece Desert Inn means. Yeah, we were wondering that. I, I have my theories, but I, but I don't know. Nobody, no one has ever like explicitly said definitively, this is what it means. Yeah, they don't tell us that shit. <laughs> I, I don't think, well, they probably just shouldn't tell you because it lends to, it lends to the immersion and everything. I think so um, too. Um, but like you have, uh, so we only saw the first six of eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Those, those are the only ones out right now as we're recording tomorrow, everyone will be able to access all of all eight episodes of Desert End. All eight episodes. Okay. We'll have to cover the last two without you, uh, Anthony in our next episode, I suppose. Cool. But yeah, uh, you get a whole episode to yourself, uh, um, episode four. And your character is essentially the the groundskeeper of the hotel, but you're also related to your sister is like the owner, I, I guess. She's a co-owner, yeah. Right. So actually, um, I should clarify, like for the uninitiated, a really good uh, tip for watching this show for the first time is to put the subtitles on. Yeah. Because it, it, it tells it lets you know who's singing. And it also just because the opera moments are sung in English, but occasionally it's it's hard to... It's hard to hear the individual phrasing sometimes. Definitely. And some of, and, and, and uh, there's a convention where there are off camera singers. So like the, there's somebody who sings Federico, my role mm-hmm. off camera while I do all of Federico's on camera work. Right. Okay. So actually that, that uh, leads into one question I have for you. Um, those actors who are like moving their lips to the lyrics, they are singing. Is that the implication or no? They are singing live. They, and if people are like, oh, they're lip, oh, they're lip syncing. They're not lip syncing. Holy fuck. They, these are, these are some of the premier opera singers of the entire world that are in this show. Isabel Leonard and Talise Trevine play the two, the two, uh, you know, hotel owners. Anyway, they're singing live. That that like they're not lip syncing. I was staring at the Adam's apples to try <laughs> to figure out if they were actually, <laughs> and they were. But yeah. I was like, "How can you sing opera?" Because obviously, I, I don't have much exposure with opera either. But what I have seen, people just stand there and sing because it's hard, and you can't really do anything else. But these people are singing while sitting or moving around. And it's kind of mind blowing. 
It's incredible. It's a superpower. Yeah. But that's why these people are, you know, the most famous opera singers in the world. Right. One thing I kind of wanted to stress, or I really liked the contemporary nature of it all. Uh, And I'm not really sure how to describe that, but, but the entire um, series has like a, a surrealist kind of vibe to it. Uh, And it's like bathed in like neon lights, kind of like Tony's uh, background light there. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's like, there's a, there's a melding of the, of the series score, like with the operatic musical numbers. So, and it's, it's all like one continuous kind of like 10 to 12 minute segment. I can't say that I completely understood all of the plot elements. Like we did have to go back and rewatch a couple episodes just to get our bearings and understand the relationships between the characters. But by the time we got to the sixth episode, we were sort of primed for whatever revelation is coming. And so, so yeah, like, it's it's just really cool. I don't know. Thanks. Yeah, hang in there too. It was super confusing to me reading it for the first, second, third, fourth time. Um, but part of like our process in making the thing and filming it was clarifying and making it more specific. And I think there is a payoff in the last episode where things, I think, start to unravel in a way that will make it clearer, at least a little bit to the audience, what actually is going on in a way that'll make you want to go back and rewatch it. So like what I wanted to say is like the show is a lot more coherent than like your initial impression, like as an audience viewer will suggest, like you'll get there. You just need to give it, give it time. Um, And uh, your episode like from a disabled perspective was super interesting to me. Basically episode four, you sort of strike up a romance with one of the patrons of the hotel um, who is, who sort of recently arrived because uh, his, his boyfriend drowned and he like desperately wants to reconnect with his, his boyfriend. Um, And so he's like in the middle of just like profound grief and there's a there's a monologue that opens the series that sort of testifies to this grief. And by the way, those monologues, one of which you deliver yourself, like they're they're very very well done, like super organic. And they do a lot of they do a lot of legwork uh, toward like allowing the audience to identify with the characters um, when things get a little bit more dream logicy. You know what I mean? When you feel a little Definitely. bit, yeah. So you're always kind of identifying with the people on the screen. But anyway, so your your character sort of takes a liking to this to this uh, hotel resident, um, and you kind of decide, I think, at some point that you want to help him deal with uh, his his grief, like help him move on, essentially. And it's not just like a like a hookup or something or a distraction or whatever. Like you 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 seem to have a vested interest in helping this guy move on. And so there's a scene where. Where you bring uh, Ion is his name, I think, right? You you bring Ion to the to the hotel pool, and I haven't quite figured out exactly metaphorically what the pool represents, but I I think you're like trying to baptize him, or there's something going on there. Um, but, but essentially, uh, you you guys like go for a swim, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, like there's a moment where. Okay, so I should stress, like, all throughout the series, your prosthetic is in full view. Like, generally speaking, like, when your whole body's in frame, like, so is your prosthetic. Uh, And 
um, there is no other kind of sort of allusion to your disability other than that. Like, like the show sort of watches you working um, and there's like a long tracking shot at the beginning of the series where you're like opening up the hotel and it, which is kind of fascinating. And then, okay. So, but during this swimming scene, there's, there's one particular part where you, all you do is remove your prosthetic to get into the water. And I was thinking about this, like there is something really intimate about that particular moment. You were, you, you've talked to Andrew about it taking a long time for you to get to a moment uh, with a person like in your life privately where you could remove your prosthetic in front of them uh, because it's like, you know, you're showing a person a part of your body that you've had to wrestle with for your whole life and that you sort of subconsciously maybe don't approve of or that others don't. Um, and so, but in this scene, like you remove your prosthetic for ion and it's like all in real time, like you take off the device and then there's like a sock over your leg that you remove and then you like get into the water and you go for this swim. And I just, I loved how there was a, like a tenderness in that gesture. And I was trying to think like, if it was, if it was one of us, like if it was Anthony or I that had to transfer into the pool, I don't know how you would have made it sexy. Like <laughs> an attendant comes out of the bushes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starts peeling clothes. <laughs> yeah, so like for me, it would have like it would have meant like a butt shuffle like across like the the swimming pool granite, <laughs> like you know, slow and like awkward and inauthentic. But anyway, like it's just so tastefully done, and it it reads as like real. And so yeah, I just wanted to tell you that. Thank you. Like I have to say, like hearing your insights into the show into this piece that like I worked on and uh, put so much of myself into just means so much to me. And it's really incredible and really touching. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I, I never, I guess I didn't. Okay. Here's the thing. So the person who wrote my episode was Ryan Haddad and he is a disabled actor who people might know from The Politician. I think he plays a character named Andrew on The Politician. He's got cerebral palsy. And he's also just like a, you know, downtown sort of New York City, you know, superstar writer, you know, solo performer and actor on The Politician. So he wrote this episode and he called me last year and he said, if you were to get into the pool or like go to the beach or something with a lover, how would you do it? And what would it be like? And I was like, well, why are you asking me this question? He was like, don't worry about that. <laughs> so, um, but he, he, his, his whole thing was that he wanted it to be authentic. Obviously he wanted the, the representation of disability to be super honest and realistic, but he wanted it to be a moment of vulnerability where the disabled person is the one leading the able-bodied person mm. through an intimate, tender experience, not the other way around. Yeah, which is exactly what occurs. Yeah, so that's, if if you think about the scene in that way, I don't want to give too much away, but mm -hmm. here it is. Like, if you think about the scene in that way, then yeah, it does become kind of a baptism. And there's something about Federico supporting Ion to just sort of release. I mean, there's a moment when I'm holding uh, Ion, played by Raviv Ullman, who was, uh, by the way, played Phil of the Future on the Disney show. Oh, ago. really? 
Yeah. So, but yeah, he's, uh, I'm sort of carrying him in my arms and we're in the pool and I'm sort of holding him and we're sort of moving about the pool in that way. And his arms are sort of wide open. And it's, it's a moment where Federico as someone older, as someone who's lived through more can help Ion relax and sort of release into sensuality again after this trauma. So that's how, that's how I see it. I see it as somebody who's been through some shit teaching somebody how to navigate and enjoy life again after the painful experience. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. Thanks. That raises a really interesting thing, though, because it's not very often that the disabled person in a role is teaching someone something actively. Usually it's like a passive learn, learned thing where, you know, they see the disabled person and they learn something about themselves because of inspiration or whatever, but you're actively showing him and you're actively the one, I don't know if empower is the right word, but you're in control of the scene and you are, you're guiding him through his own emotional journey. And it's usually a disabled person's kind of a side piece to that journey rather than, the actual like driving guiding force. Yeah. And so that is a really, really cool thing yeah. for him to use uh, disability in such a powerful educational, but emotional moment. That's, that's the thing. I mean, cause it all comes out of love. It comes out of their, their mutual desire for one another and their sense of tenderness and wanting to take care of each other. And, um, that's that's where the education education kind of comes in it's it's because we want to take care of each other right i I have a question about your prosthetic again here (laughs) um it's not the same one you had in broad city no no it's a it's a different one but the one that i had in broad city oh this is really interesting um i had like a foam cover so what they would do is they would take the measurements of my uh average my normal leg and they would create, uh, out of foam, they would create a cover for my prosthetic leg so that it filled out pants in a more sort of realistic way. And um, I later found out it also sort of keeps the leg warmer too. But <laughs> mostly, it was, mostly it was aesthetic. And it worked for Broad City because she didn't, she approached me, she didn't realize that I had a prosthetic leg. Right. But I was also requesting that foam to be put on my prosthetic leg because I wanted to pass easily i didn't want to be stared at i didn't want to look super disabled and then i realized oh oh no it was actually in um this wasn't like my revelation at all it was i was working on othello uh the one with daniel craig and david yellow and rachel brosnan the director asked me to take the phone have my have the phone taken off of my leg so that it it you know, was obvious that that i had a prosthetic leg and it was for, you know, aesthetic purposes. And then I realized it was super freeing to just be able to sort of just, uh, yeah, acknowledge, I guess, to myself that it, that I am sort of wearing a machine. So now you, you're foam free. Foam free, baby. That's amazing. That's got to be like a big mental turning point for you, right? It was. Yeah, it was. It was just a moment where I could just acknowledge reality yeah. and, 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 and not be afraid to be seen as, as I am. Did you have to psych yourself up or were you already pretty comfortable with the idea of like taking the leg off in in that scene on camera for everyone to see it was intense 
Yeah. It was scary. It was scary for sure. I've never shown my stump on camera before. Um, yeah, it's because I know that it's going to freak people out. You know, I know that. And to be honest, it freaked me out. And, you know, I, but it was something that I really wanted to do. Really, really wanted to do. I've been saying for a while, I want to be in a play or something where I'm just like totally naked. <laughs> and especially a play where there's just everyone's there in the room and I get to just sort of fully own and share the body that I have spent most of my life struggling against and sort of being feeling a lot of shame over. Yeah. But it, there's this like, but I think the fear and like the kind of like self-consciousness fuels that in me too. Yeah. Well, acting is a great medium for sort of like self introspection. And it's almost like therapy in a way, right? Yeah, it is. It is. You know, I think for, for everybody involved, for the audience and the actors, you know, and I think there's something about like going outside of your comfort zone, doing things that are super scary or uncomfortable can, um, well, I read I read a tweet the other day that it helps with neuroplasticity, and I was like, "Oh, well, that's what I do all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my my neurons are super plastic." <laughs> <laughs> this whole this whole notion of passing is like uh, really interesting to me. Like, w- w- have you seen Ryan O'Connor's TV show special? Uh, so it's like, like, a monumental achievement. I think that show is like super important. It's really well done. It's, it's funny, like in an authentic and real way that isn't entirely contingent upon like it's disabled themes. Uh, it, it checks all the boxes essentially for what we look for and what we want, uh, in a mediascape that represents disability properly. But when I watched it, I saw so much of myself in Ryan that I found myself like, like having a hard time watching him on screen uh, because he sort of like moves like similarly to me. Um, and like, he has the same disability, but, but like to like sort of a lesser extent, he's like more able-bodied. So I was like kind of processing a whole bunch of really petty feelings uh, while watching this thing. Um, and one of the sort of like the, the, the central conceit of the first season of the show is that, uh, Ryan does not want people to know that he has cerebral palsy. So he tells them, you know, I got in a car accident and that's why I have this limp, but it will go away eventually. I will heal or whatever. And so the, the notion is that in that is that he in fact passes as somebody who is not disabled. And I had so much trouble with that, but it like, I don't think I would have it in reference to all disabled people who are able to pass. It's more that like I was looking at Ryan and being like, you're me. And I can't pass. And so like, you're doing this to like cater to your able-bodied audience who would believe in this premise for the sake of the show. And I do not like this. And so despite that the show was so fucking awesome, I, was, I still had more of a profound like sort of like frustration with it than I would say a stupid movie like with Johnny Knoxville, like The Ringer or I, I don't know, like Simon Birch or any other sort of short-sighted like early 2000s like cripple romp, you know, crap. And so, well, how do you feel about it now? How do you feel about special now? Has your opinion changed at all? Or do do you like, do you recognize that a lot of that is your own, your own shit or, you know, how do you feel? 
Well, like to Anthony or Tony and I started this podcast because he knows that like, or it was kind of a running joke that I have a unhealthy aversion to media that depicts disability. Like I'm obsessed with movies, but I like never watched before, before this podcast, I never watched my left foot. Uh, like so many like seminal disabled films. And he's like, we have to watch this. And then I have to talk to you about your, your, your problematic opinions because I think it's like great fodder for a podcast. And then also like you, you got to work through this stuff. So uh, like I'm warming up to special a lot. And I like, you know, as I said, I understand why it is wonderful, but it's still going to take me like we're going to watch season two pretty soon for a subsequent episode. And I know I'm going to spend a lot of that episode like slightly frustrated <laughs> and working th- working through my ableism you know what i mean but I, I, no i think it's i think it's important to like still be critical yeah you know and be be discerning about about the stories that are like even even the stories that are like that are like authentic that are like good you know because there are, there are, everybody's got blind spots everybody's got internalized ableism and that's going to come out in, in things that we make, even if we're, you know, we are the, we are the disability we want to see. But then there's also the, the thing of like, I can understand why you don't like my left foot. Cause that's a fucking not, you know, that's an able-bodied actor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, of course, of course, like there's that. And, and yeah, it's like the cornerstone of uh, what's his face's career is his ability to transform into other kinds of otherness. And it's just kind of bullshit. It's gross. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. Well, the other thing about it, and we've talked about this a bit before, but there aren't enough disabled stories on screen or in the media for us to be, we still have to be critical because when there's a show like special, even if it's really, really good, it's basically speaking or demonstrating disability on behalf of a community. And so... Whether, you know, obviously that's not Ryan's fault. No. And he he should make that show. But we also should be critical because, you know, we can't just say, okay, well, at least there's something that's better than nothing. And then just chalk it up to that. You know, we still have to strive to be better and better. And, and if you can be critical and see flaws and find the holes, then you can find ways to write new stories that fill those gaps or uh, evolve them and make them better in other ways. Yeah. And then like gain insight into your own attitudes about your disability or about life. Yeah. What, what do you guys, wait, I want, I'm really curious now. What do you guys, what are your main critiques of special? I think I liked it more than Jamie did, but I think it was because I can imagine if the show had a guy with SMA, like my disability, it would be a lot harder for me to watch. But I watched it and I, you know, I have a bunch of friends with CP. Obviously, Jamie's one of them. And so I see the similarities, but they don't bother me because I don't look at Jamie and think, oh, his leg moves like that. That's a bad thing. Uh, But Jamie, you know, might, and I don't want to speak for you, but, you know, I can see how you can see Ryan move or put on a shoe or tie his shoelaces or open a letter and be like, that's how I do it. I hate that that's how I look. And now everyone's seeing how I look. That, like, that can be really hard. But because I don't have to go through those 
emotions myself, I think it's easier for me to like it. And because I'm not dealing with all of those internalized emotions. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the first time I watched The Comeback with Lisa Kudrow. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that show? That came out like in two, like in the early 2000s, and then it had a weird revival for a season like five years ago or something. Yeah, there were yeah, 10, okay. 10 years between seasons, but right. I remember watching that show and almost having to avert my eyes because she's an actress and she just desperately needs everyone to like her and approve of her and think right. that she's as special as she wants to be. And that show came out right as I was... I was in my early 20s. I was entering the acting profession. And I just saw so much of myself in that character. She gets herself into the most uncomfortable scenarios where she just digs a hole for herself. And then she just digs it deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what I was doing. But it all comes out of this desperation to be approved of and validated. Mm -hmm. So I had the same experience that you had watching special with... Lisa Kudrow's character in uh, in that show. I, I think what it is is that like at a certain point, something becomes so like all encompassingly relatable that it ceases to be escapism. And then you, you like you you see yourself reflected back at you and you're like, uh, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah, this is the thing that I spend my whole day avoiding. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's like my criticisms of special like i think all of them are superficial like i i don't have an issue with the with the overall arc of the story or like like with aspects of the production or even the representation of disability you know like that bit about passing i think was what sort of bothered me the most and then there there's this um there's the codependency dynamic between Ryan and his parents that that is incredibly relatable to me. Like, you know, I've had periods of my life where I've lived uh, by myself autonomously, like within uh, care, uh, care environments, I guess, attendant care environments. But then there's also been stretches where like right now I'm currently living in my parents' garage. So how do I put it? I get the, the one, the one sort of, thing that that kind of did bother me about special was um there are certain moments of of like intimacy or like sex scenes or whatever that were very uh like awkward uh kind of like um like american pie coming of age um like teens sort of figuring out their bodies and not really sure what the fuck to do and so it's like slow and passionless and like you know that kind of vibe but then so Ryan's doing the same thing here because he's like the idea is that he's sexually inexperienced, but it kind of bothered me because like uh, it took the sex out of it. You know what I mean? And like that's sort of the whole point of it is to try to tell people that, hey, you know, disabled people need intimacy and and do have it uh, and like, you know, stop uh, deeming us or stop desexualizing us and then these scenes occur and then like the the response to the series is about how progressive it is in these depictions of intimacy and i was like uh i don't know i have a problem with that <laughs> yo most disabled people i know are also the horniest people i know yeah. <laughs> and and yeah i mean i think special is very good and i think it's very important mhm and I know also that being 
the first of its kind in that it's disabled and queer. Mm -hmm. It had to ride this fine line of approachability, sort of acceptability, where there is, I can, I can just tell that maybe they had to cater a little bit to the, you know, anticipated expectations of the mostly non-disabled audience. Right. You know? So yeah, the sex is mostly funny, awkward. There's not a lot of like, just like lust thing. Yeah. That most, I think, disabled people kind of express maybe partially because, you know, it's harder for disabled people to get laid. Yeah. Where the fuck is the lust? Like they, they, we need the lust. <laughs> the lust and the, yeah, the lust, the passion. But I, you know, I, I, and I see that I, and I think that is like a super valid and important critique of special. Um, but I have, I, I also have like patience for it because I think that it's, you know, it, it's being talked about a lot and there's a lot of attention on it. I think partially because it plays that game yeah. and um, it, it, it really got into the mainstream. And I think that's part of it. That's a part of the reason why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're just. It's it's really easy to see a show like special and you're like, okay, we're there. Let's go. Let's get all the way to the end. Let's have a show that checks all of our boxes for all of our individual experiences. And like obviously that's an unrealistic request, but it, it's also we feel like we as disabled viewers of media have been sitting here kind of tapping our feet, waiting for this moment. And then you see it and it's just, it's never going to live up to all all of your expectations. It can't because the expectations, there's too many and they're, it's trying, it it can't be everything, you know? I, I, I hear that. I hear that. I also think that it's, you know, one of the frustrating things maybe that I'm hearing from you guys is like, it's uh, the show kind of positions itself as about disability and sex it kind of is about that right like as much as they want to say like it's about the mom or whatever it's about disability and sex i think those are the things those are the main those are the main themes so when you know it's doing that stuff and it doesn't go sort of as deep into the the lust of the sexuality then yeah it is a little disappointing because it's like oh i thought this was supposed to be about disability and sex you know yeah and it's very frustrating. It's it's frustrating when you see that, like Jamie's saying, and you're like, okay, but I don't want you to think that this is what it has to be like. Like an able-bodied viewer looks at that and goes, oh, so like having sex with a disabled person is like that. Absolutely. There's That's a super valid reason to be critical of, of that show. I think it's like the same thing that we got mad about. Have you ever seen Anthony? Have you ever seen me before you? No, no. I have. I, I, you know I, about I, it though. I I avoided that. Yeah. You should continue to avoid it. Oh, I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's the same thing. It's like I'm sure people go through those experiences. I'm sure that's a relatable story to someone. But when there's only a handful of stories about disability in the media to choose from and you see that one getting a bunch of attention it's hard to look at it and be behind it as a disabled person because then it's like you don't want people to go there able-bodied people who don't have a depth of understanding of disability and go oh i guess that's how how it is for a bunch of disabled people 
So it's the same thing. If there was a huge array of disabled media and that was one of them, cool. That it reflects somebody's experience. And that's great. But when there's only a few, it's very frustrating to see that because it doesn't reflect a majority. Yeah. And like you said, we want all the boxes ticked. Yeah. You know, we want to see exactly how it is for us because there are so few uh, opportunities to see ourselves on screen. So, you know, I think me before you sucks. Not good. Uh, special, excellent. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Like, like very good. And, and I think there is, there is with, with special, like that element of, God, why can't it just be exactly what I want it? Yeah, it's so close. It's so, yeah, it's so yeah. close, but, but it also can't be because it's not. It's like, yeah. it's, it's doing what it's doing. And I think it's doing what it's doing really well. It, it's on a whole other tier because I think if it, if it manages to reach me, it's such a, like, it's such a, if it manages to fucking cut to the core of me, then it's fucking doing something amazing. You took it you know? personally. Like, yeah. that is, like, a huge compliment to that Yeah, show. yeah. And, like, you know, I might take me before you, like, a little bit personally, but only <laughs> enough to, like, energize my negative opinion of it. Like, you know, I don't care about it. Yeah, that's what it's good for, generating hate for itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do, should we play uh, Wheelbreakers? All right, let's do it. Oh, I forgot about this. I'm scared. Okay, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Are you going to play the sound effect? So cheesy. Wheel breakers. (laughs) That's awful. (laughs) (laughs) It's the fucking worst. (laughs) You you can't change it, though. (laughs) No. It's it's amazing. (laughs) Jamie, do you have one ready? Uh, do you want to go first? I always go first. I have a really stupid one, like yes. especially relative to everything we've been talking. <laughs> excuse me, everything we've been talking about over the last hour. Um, so Tony, my co-host, and Anthony, I can make you guys one hundred percent able-bodied, no residual effects or anything. But the hook is every day, at least once a day, you have to covertly. Spit into a coworker's coffee. A coworker's coffee. And there is the risk that you're going to get caught. Yeah, and if you get caught, you become disabled again. The the I feel like the more I would practice it, the better I'd get at it. Right. So 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 um yeah I I I would try it. I would try it and then maybe get caught just for fun. And then you're but then you'd have to you would get caught and you'd still have to do it the next day. You'd also have to. Be- Befriend the coworkers that drink coffee on a daily basis, but that's probably not a problem. God, that's true. I would have to gain access to their coffee somehow. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. So is it like if you miss a day, you're just back to disabled? Or how yep. does that work? Yep. You're back in the chair. Or Oh, you can never. You have to every single day. Every single fucking day. Be with that person specifically in the morning when they're drinking coffee. Well, not it could be any any coworker's coffee, but it has to be in your workplace, and they have to know you. And it has to be in the morning. Uh, anytime during the day, I suppose. So, okay, actually, no, there has to be more rules here because then at lunch you could just it'd be way too easy. Yeah, what if you just spit in the coffee pot? The obvious wait the uh, the obvious solution is to become the coffee guy. 
<laughs> yes. the obvious. That's the <laughs> obvious <laughs> solution. No, no, no. I like I, I make the coffee. I make the <laughs> coffee. Everybody <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. Like Duh. you bring coffee. Done. Oh, you bring coffee. You buy the coffee. You go broke, but imagine like everyone falls in love with the brand of creamer that you order and it turns out just to be your spit. <laughs> <laughs> is being is you know, is being able bodied worth all of that trouble? Yeah, I I don't know. Like I think that's what our wheel breakers have amounted to. You could still get sick, you know. Mm. Like you could still get injured. I don't know. I'm pretty happy. That sounds like a lot of fucking stress. Yeah, it does. Right. Is this how all the wheel breakers, is this how all wheel breakers end where you're just like, oh, I don't want to fucking do it. Yeah. A lot of them, some of them, depending on it, I'm like, yeah, I would do that. But I think we have to make it. So not only do you get to be able-bodied, but you'll ne- you're like guaranteed to not be disabled again. Oh. Like even like, as you get older, you're like 90 years old and you're still killing it. And you know just- what I mean? Die out of nowhere. And yeah, you just die of <laughs> your marathon running and you just collapse. Okay. That sounds cool. But <laughs> yeah. Don't know. I don't know. See, this is the this is the problem with this, is that I've never not been disabled. Yeah. So I don't have anything to like compare it to, like go back to, you know? Right. Yeah, there there's no going back. There's yeah, there's nothing to compare it to. There, there's also a chance that your able-bodied self could be so divergent from like your current identity or whatever that you just wouldn't be you as an able-bodied person. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. Hey, Anthony or co-host Anthony, do you have uh, wheel breakers? All right, let's. I'll see. Let's 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 do it. If I can make you able-bodied, or you get to stay disabled. And at one point in your life, you get to choose when and you get to ask your future self a question. And you get to ask your future self, you can say, hey, future self at 65 years old and ask that person a question. Or you can just be able-bodied and be able-bodied. Okay. What, Does funny. that make sense? No, I'm. I my brain blew up. What's going on? <laughs> so the, wait. So the question is: you can either be able-bodied or stay disabled and ask your future self a question. Exactly. Oh, and you have to choose. So the wheel breakers, you have to choose one of those. Yeah. Okay. Both what? sound like a trap, a sneaky trap. <laughs> yeah, Anthony, uh, co-host. What? <laughs> what would? What would you ask yourself in the future? I don't know. What if you don't like the answer? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is it going to be like a morbid question? I don't think I would ask myself a morbid question. Maybe I would ask, I don't know. Because, yeah, you might not like the answer, but you're still stuck with it. Uh, I would ask, what is something that I can be doing now to really make your life easier? Oh, man. Whoa. Damn. That's genius. I would ask (laughs) that. That's the only acceptable answer. Or only acceptable question. That is, yeah. Yeah, you have to game it so that you can... So I would take that one. Why not? I would take that one. Unless my 65-year-old self is just in like a fucking bitch and tells me the wrong thing. <laughs> totally sabotages me. <laughs> Don't even bother trying. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, God. Oh, see? And that exactly. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if a 65-year-old self said that? Don't even even bother trying. Don't even bother. And then you have to live 
the next 30 years. <laughs> Waiting for the, the, the reason why, why you said that to yourself. This is a nightmare. This is a true nightmare. I would, I might have to, I might have to become able-bodied. This scenario. If I had to choose one, <laughs> I would have to become able. Uh, yeah, that is what you'd have to do. You'd have to ask yourself a question to try to meta game your way into a better spot. What would you do, Jamie? Uh, well, like now that we've sort of unpacked the potential of this concept, I would it would feel like doing myself a disservice if I didn't stay disabled and ask myself a question. Do I have time to determine what the question is? Yeah, you don't have to ask right away. You get to choose when you ask and you get to choose like what age in the future you want to talk to. Okay, and if and, and like if I get one answer from 74-year-old me that I don't like, can I have another question for 55-year-old me? No. No way. <laughs> can I ask the genie for more wishes? Fuck. What would you ask? What would you ask? Yeah, what would, would you it ask? be different? Would it be different from how can I make your life easier? See, this could be like, this is like a highly personal question. But what if I told you you have to ask right now? Okay, well, so I guess one question I might ask is, should I get spinal fusion surgery? That's not a bad, like, that's a pretty, like, you're basically setting yourself up for a yes or no answer. So that's good. Absolutely. A yes or no. A yes or no is a good call. Yeah. 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 So then there's then, then that assumes that there's a parallel universe in which I did decide to get it and I can answer that question like 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 informatively. Not necessarily. You could be talking to 55-year-old Jamie and he's like you better get it cuz I didn't initiate sex. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but you could you could ask yourself some really sad questions, you know? Yeah, you totally could. Yeah. I do like this. I do like this one a lot, though. <laughs> it's not as easy. It's <clears throat> way better than my coffee spit crap. <laughs> <laughs> that one has its place. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough one because there's a lot of variables, right? Like you, if you take the deal and you ask a question, you're basically open to what question you might ask. Anthony, I think this is a wonderful premise for a science fiction film that we should write together. About a disabled person. Just disabled people talking to their future disabled selves? Yeah, we'll get like some puzzle film director to help us out with it. We'll call up Christopher Nolan or something. Yeah. But he'd probably make the plot too convoluted. Never mind. I would watch it. You could be in it if you want. I star in it. Hell yeah. Yeah. You mind you already basically cracked the code in terms of the types of questions you should be asking. So you've earned yourself a spot. <laughs> so yeah, uh, my my question, or sorry, my answer to this wheel breaker is wheel. I would choose to be disabled. But do you know what you would ask or when you would ask? No, that's, I don't. Sorry. Okay. You don't have to. Anthony, I was, I just, a question popped into my head. Have you ever been in an audition and either flexed your leg or like, like shown it to be like, hey, just, you know, if you want that tax discount or whatever, or hitting it to to try to avoid them knowing yeah i used to hide it all the time when i was younger uh there's one time my, one of my first jobs out of college was i did the national tour of a musical called the 25th annual putnam county spelling bee and i i i wore long pants uh for the audition and thinking that maybe they wouldn't know about it but then they they figured it out and um 
and it was all fine and I got the job and it was great, but <clears throat> I tried to hide it a lot when I was younger, especially like for commercial auditions, you know, it's hard sometimes like you don't know cause it's like so corporate. You don't know if that's what they want, but then <clears throat> I booked a, um, I did a commercial for Disney in 2019 and um, I showed up, I wore pants cause it was cold outside and uh, now cause I was trying to hide. Then I booked that job and then it wasn't until I got down to Orlando and it was hot and I was wearing shorts to my first day. They were like, oh, this is cool. And then they put me in shorts mm. to show it off. Oh, man, that's awesome. For one of the for one of the scenes in the commercial. So there was that. But I think the, that is dependent on the times because I think people now nowadays are more available to seeing disabled people, especially with somebody with my disability. Able-bodied people are kind of open to it um than they used to be when i first started 15 years ago yeah i uh i used to be well i I was a big drama geek in high school and it was my favorite thing and i remember we all the whole drama class got asked if we wanted to be in uh like a black lot actors in a disney movie and obviously everyone was excited and so we all did it and i remember in one of the scenes they we're taking shots and then after one of the guys came up to me from set and was like we just did like a close-up shot of you uh we think it would be great can we are you okay if we like focus on you and i was like yeah okay 15 minutes of fame for sure and then we, i watched the movie and it never came out and i've always kind of wondered if it was like because this was i don't know 2008 or something so I was like, was it just the shot didn't work out and they couldn't use it? Or, you know, continuity errors or something? Or was it like, I don't think the world is ready for this disabled person? It, it could have been any of those things. Feasibly, it could have been literally any of those things. It could have been cut for time. It could have been that there were some, you know, executives who were not comfortable showing somebody with a disability. Yeah, I, it's all, who knows? It must be hard to just... You know, it's probably easy to get stuck in your head and just ask these questions forever. But. Constantly. That's my life. Feeling yeah. these fucking questions in my mind about why did they pick me? Uh, uh, uh. I don't fucking have any control over it at all. Yes. You know, other people's shit. I guess we should end it there, but thank you so much for coming on. Whether you like it or not, I think that you are doing really good work. You know, the fact that whether you're trying to being an actor with a disability is an important thing right now. It's a big deal. I think it's even a big deal because of the fact that a lot of your more recent roles aren't focusing on that. But even in those roles, you are, like you said, you can't not be an actor with a disability. You can't not be playing a disabled role. And so it's really, really cool that you're getting parts and you're getting uh more and more roles and that's fantastic and so obviously i wish you all the best and thank you so much for coming on people listening should definitely check out desert in streaming now by the time this comes out it will be available for subscribers and then the next day it will be available publicly is that right that's right on operabox.tv so you can visit the website or you can download the app box.tv is there anything else how can people reach you if they want to get in touch 
mostly find me on Instagram at Flittergagget. So that's like glitter, glitter faggot, but it's Flittergagget. When I saw that, I was like, this is such a good name. <laughs> that was a very drunk decision in 2011 when Instagram first became a thing. That's um, so good. So yeah, I'm on Instagram at Flittergagget. You can find me on Twitter at Flittergagget. Thank you for doing this with us, Anthony. This is like so much fun. It was awesome. It was so much fun. And I love spending time with you guys. And I think what you're doing is fucking amazing. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, this, this was fun. Take care, everyone. <laughs>